This podcast is sponsored by Inside Out Group, the specialists in high-risk and challenging filming and time-lapse, covering health and safety videos for rail, construction and infrastructure projects nationwide. And we're live. Welcome to this week's Safer Than Your Average. On the show this week, we've got Ken. Ken's been very influential in my career. He's one of the best safety directors I've worked with to date. He's really good at coaching and mentoring young people, and he helped me to develop into the position that I'm in at the moment. He's not completely perfect, though. His joke book leaves a lot to be desired. Think dad jokes circa 1980. So if you just want to come in and introduce yourself, Ken. Thanks, Blair. Uh, first of all, just want to thank you for this opportunity for asking me along. Um, Ken Miller, I'm currently the Group Shed Director with Springfield Properties PLC, which is a Scottish house builder. Um, I joined May this year, May the 18th to be exact, um, right in the middle of the pandemic. So it's been an interesting start to a new job, but we're getting there slowly. <laughs> I, I know the feeling, Ken, I know the feeling. It's been interesting starting during a pandemic. I was in a very similar position. It's uh, it's quite difficult to try and get to know your team and get a feel for the business, isn't it? It is, yeah, definitely. That, that, that's been the biggest thing is um, obviously starting a new job and you've got a new Sheck team. It's getting to know them all as individuals as well as a team. Yeah. So, you know, with some of the restrictions we've had on us, it's not been as easy and Teams and Zoom are, are very good, but I don't think they, they beat the face-to-face -face interaction and discussion. So, I know you've seen the format of the podcast, Ken, and we like to just go right back to the beginning with our guests to find out a little bit about where they came from and where they grew up. If you just want to tell us a bit about your background. Yeah, um, I'm Edinburgh, born and bred. I, I was born on the, the west side of the city. I now live on the east side of the city, but that's because... Um, my good ladies from the east side, so I lost that first battle. I had to move to the east side. Um, I was brought up in a place called Clermiston. And Cl Clermiston was back in its day, just two years before I was born, it opened up as a, a large council estate. And I was born out there and I was raised there for, I was lived there for 21 years. Um, I've got to say, a very good upbringing. Typical council estate, all the kids knew each other, all the parents knew each other. It was a kind of place that, although it was your neighbours and it was your pals, mums and dads, you, you never called them with their first name. You also, you always called them Mrs. Ross or Mr. McGee or, or what have you, you know, back back in that time. Um, so, yeah, it was, a, it, was, it was a very good upbringing. Went to the local school there, Drumbray Primary, and then I, I went on to Craigmont High School. Um, I've got to say, I... I Certainly the upbringing, I was the youngest out of four. I've got an older sister and two older brothers. Um, they always say the youngest is, is best off. I don't disagree with that. You know, um, apart from the hand me down clothes, I, I didn't agree with that. You know, it was good. You know, my, my mum and dad were hard workers. My dad worked with um, a company called Ferranti. You might be too young to remember them, but Ferranti then became BAE Systems. Mm -hmm. um, and it's now moved on to, I think it's Lombardo or Lombard now. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. So, for Ante, was an Italian company. My, my dad was a, a radar technician with them. So he worked on a lot of MOD jobs, fitting radars and 
maintaining radars on, on ships and aircraft and things like that. So when I was um, 21, he was moving down the east coast to Tantallon. Mm -hmm. The reason for that, just outside North Berwick, and the reason for that was to allow them to test the radar out over the fourth without too much interference from Edinburgh Airport. Yeah. We used to do a lot of work with RAF Lucas, so when the, the jets were based there at one time, they would test the radars with, the, with their jets and, and things like that. So we moved down to a place in East Lothian called Haddington. Mm -hmm. um, but in all honesty, I think I was only there two years, three years. And I got married and moved back into Edinburgh again. So, so no, my mum, she was a she was a dinner lady, which had its benefits at primary school, because I always got seconds. <laughs> so that was that was good. And I had a lot of pals because they always wanted seconds as well. So that, that was even better. <laughs> But um, yeah, so no, it was it was good good upbringing. It, it, probably a good upbringing that made me grounded. Mm -hmm. if, if I'm totally honest with you, you know, I've I like to think that both my mom and my dad sort of set the work ethic part of it. You know, they were both hard workers. So that that's certainly where I think I get that that part from. Um, so yeah, no, it was it, it was good. So that was that was my early years. Although mm -hmm. I wasn't a very good person at school. I just didn't like school. That was, you know, I, I found that I actually just wanted to, when I got to high school, when I, I think I got about second year, I just wanted to leave school and get out working. That was my whole, my whole thought process. Um, so much so, I was 16 in the December and the exams, all levels at the time, were in the May. Mm -hmm. Just at that time, so you're talking about December 1979, we had just had a change of government and unemployment had rocketed mm -hmm. and my school head um, or house head as they were called called me in his office one day myself and another lad and says look you two guys are 16 this month you're not doing very well at the school because you're just not sticking in if you get a chance at a job now i'll take it because come may there's going to be a lot of school leavers and you're you've got to struggle mm -hmm. I, I thought well you know what that's pretty sound advice at the time, because I just wanted out of school anyway, and here was my my avenue to get out of school. Oh, <laughs> my teacher was telling me to get out. <laughs> so they actually sent me to the careers office, and strangely enough, when I was a kid, the one thing that always always fascinated me when I used to go to the shops with my mum was I used to stand for hours and just look in the butcher shop window, and I had this thing when I left school, I wanted to be a butcher, and everybody thought, you know what, he's, he'll grow out of it. Anyway, I went to the careers office and I said the same to them. They said, well, actually, we've got two vacancies. There's one here, um, which is in the area that you live. But there's another one here that's actually closer to your home and it's a pound extra a week. Mm -hmm. She says, well, I'll go to the, an interview with a pound extra a week and see how I got on. So I went along and I got the job mm -hmm. and I left on my 16th birthday. That was the day I left school. That was the day, the next again day after my interview, I left school. And then I started, it was a four-year apprenticeship at that time, but I actually chose to do the five-year because you could do an extra year and get the license to deal with game. Mm -hmm. So I, I chose to do that extra year. So I went right into, right into the butchering, which I, if I'm honest, I absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it. Um, some, of the, some of the banter you had with the tradesmen and some of the jokes that we'd tell. That's where I get my dad jokes from, actually. I'm telling you jokes from 1979 when I started in the butchers. 
and it was all for, I got paid £18 a week. That's what the wage was. I didn't even earn enough to pay tax. And my mum took £10 a week, digs off me, a 16-year-old. But what she did, she was quite sneaky, actually. She never told my brothers or my sister. She used to take the money because she knew if I got the money in my pocket, I would just spend it. So she would take the money, and every now and again, she would give me the money back. She just saved it. Mm -hmm. so actually, I got three digs. Cause I actually got three butcher meat anyway, so that was paying for my digs. <laughs> she was getting a week's butcher meat for nothing anyway. So so I done that, um, did my apprenticeship, and I was in my final year, actually, and I, I was moving between shops, and there was two, two, two of us up for the job. Um, and it was it was to move progress from your apprenticeship into tradesman. Mm -hmm. There was two hours up for the job. So what they said was we're going to put both of you on two-day trial. Mm -hmm. um, one of you will do the front shop on day one, one will do the back shop. So the, the front shop was dealing with the customers and, and what have you. And the back shop was boning out the meat, the, the sides of beef and lambs and what have you. Then you'll swap over and we'll take the best who we think's the best. So that's fine. So day one, I got put in the back shop, boning out. So I started at seven in the morning and about, it must have been just before tea break. So it would be about quarter past 10 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Must have been thinking about the tea break. And I was working away, working away. And my knife slipped. And unfortunately, I stuck the knife into my wrist. Mm -hmm. And I can, still, I can still see it to this day and I can still remember it. It wasn't sore. It was mm -hmm. clean in. It went into my wrist and the point of the knife came out the other side of my wrist. But unfortunately, what I done was I cut the main artery in my wrist and I cut the tendon from my wrist down to my hand. Um, so I say it wasn't sore. And once I had a look at it and I thought, that's quite a bad one because it was pretty, pretty white when it opened up. And that was when obviously it started bleeding and everything. And that's probably the first time I ever thought about health and safety at work. Because mm -hmm. we had we had the PPE. You know, you'll see if you go into butchering and factories and, and what have you now, you'll see them wearing chainmail gloves on the opposite hand to what they hold the knife in. Mm -hmm. So if the knife slips, it'll hit the chainmail. Yeah. You know, you get chainmail aprons, all the rest of it. These things were decorations when I worked in a butcher shop. They were just hanging up in the shop. Nobody ever wore them. And then all the time, in the five years I did my apprenticeship, I never ever wore PPE once. And you were never told to wear it. Mm. And you were never shown how to wear it. So it was probably by that time, unfortunately, through an accident, that, um, that I first got thinking about health and safety. But I, I got carried off to the hospital. They, they actually <laughs> they tied a tourniquet at the top of my arm yeah. to stop the bleeding. Um, and they put me in the front of a van that was full of pigs in the back. Dead ones, I've got to say. And they took me to the local hospital, the Western General Hospital in Edinburgh, that had an AE department at the time. And they took me in and they let a tourniquet off and it was still, still bleeding and everything. So A&E were trying to deal with it. And they eventually got a surgeon who was coming out of surgery. And in their days, they called them microsurgeons. Mm -hmm. Put together the small arteries and things like that. So he came down and had a look at it and he says, look, we're, we're going to have to operate to stitch this back together. He says, that's fine, thinking they'll knock me out and take me up to the theatre. I know what they done was they gave me a general anaesthetic, a local anaesthetic in the arm. Mm -hmm. I froze my arm from the elbow down and they put it together right in front of me. Now, these things don't bother me. I'm, I've always been like, I've always been a butcher and seen blood anyway, but 
as I sat and watched him doing it, and probably the hardest part was actually trying to get the, the tendon back down, because you probably know if you cut a tendon, it's like yeah. an elastic band that shrinks up. Shrinks up, yeah. So try to get a grip of that and, and bring it down. Um, so they put it back together and put a cast on it. I was in a cast for six weeks. And then I had to go to physio. And ironically, two days after I had the accident, the guy that owned the shop turned up at my mum's door. Mm-hmm. And I thought he was just there to see how I was getting on. And all this. I'm sitting in the house with a cast on my arm. And he came in and he says, hey, the job's yours if you want it. He says, in the short time that we've seen you, he says, you were the best at the two. So I got the job out of it. I don't know if he felt sorry for me, maybe that was the reason I got the job. But, um, so I did cast on for six weeks. And when I went back, it was strange because I was fine. But every time I picked a knife up, my hand started to shake. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it's, it, it, was a, it was obviously a psychological thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was still going to physio because my arm had been in a cast for six weeks. You had to go to physio to get the muscle moving again and, yeah. and get the blood flow back into it. Um, and strangely enough, I'm right-handed, I cut my left hand. Because of the physio, to this day, my left arm is still stronger than my right arm. Mm-hmm. And I think it's down to the physio that I had to, had to do. Yeah. Uh, so I, every time I picked picked a knife up, it was, yeah, I, I was getting a wee bit thinking, this is not for me now. Um, and I thought, I need to get out of here. You know, and I, I absolutely loved the job. I, I loved the banter. I loved dealing with customers and you know, you've probably heard my jokes about some of the some of the things we used to tell the customers or some of the things they would ask us for and you know we have a bit of banter with them um, but I had to get away from it because I, I was no good to I was going to end up hurting myself again mm-hmm. so I got the opportunity at the time um, to go into an admin role actually one of the life assurance companies in Edinburgh and I jumped to that my sister worked with them um, so I jumped at that and went into to work with them. But administration wasn't for me either. That that just that was avowed when I was at school. As soon as I could get out, I didn't know where to go and sit and work in an office. Mm-hmm. So after a couple of years, I got a move to what they call the premises department. We would call it facilities now. Yeah. Um, and that was really I, I got involved. I actually got involved in fire safety before I got involved in health and safety. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got involved in fire safety. There's a massive refurbishment plan across the UK for all their offices. Um, and at that time in Edinburgh alone, they had 23 offices in Edinburgh alone. Mm-hmm. They were part of the refurbishment. They were building a new head office at that time as well. So I um, I got sent away to Morton and Marsh to the Fire Service College. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest struggles we had at that time, because it was everything was done under the old Fire Precautions Act from 1971, we had to submit our drawings to local authority for, for building approval, for building warrants and all the rest of it. And the local fire authority got involved. And each fire authority had a different interpretation of what you had to put in. Yeah. So this, the psyche behind sending me there was, before we submitted the drawings, I would mark them up on things like automatic fire detection, smoke detection, heat detection. If there was any extraction systems we had to put in, um, travel distances fire doors, mm. everything, the fire alarm call points, the, the, the whole lot. And then hopefully that would get past the fire authority because I was going on the same course as the, the uniform guys were going on at Morton Marsh. Yeah. So I did what they called the specialist legislation course 
And then I went back and did an advanced specialist legislation course, which, if I'm honest, I did it, I completed it, I passed it. But that was very technical. That was all about calculating for smoke extraction systems and shopping centres. And I was never going to use it. Mm-hmm. But it was another course that we could hold up to local authorities to say, look, we've got a guy here that's doing these. So, so yeah, that's that's where I started off in, in fire safety. Well, the one thing I should have mentioned is when I was working as a butcher when, when I was 17, I had this thing about joining the army. Mm-hmm. And my dad, you know, at that time, when I was 17, all the troubles with the army was in, was in Northern Ireland at that time. Yeah. And it was always on the news and all the rest of it. My dad, who had done his national service with the Royal Scott Fusiliers, had said to me, he says, look, I'm not keen on you going to the army. And if you're going to go in the army, you need to go in and get a trade. You need to come out with something. He says, I was in the infantry. That, that wasn't a trade. He says, don't be going in and being a tank driver because there's no many tank drivers needed when you come back out in the civvy street. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, so go and get a trade. He says, right. So I spoke to a, a friend of mine who went into the army and he was home on leave and I was talking to him. And he said to me, he says, why, why, why don't you go to the TA, first of all, and see if you like the military side of things, the discipline and all the rest of it. And I thought, at that time, I thought the TA was a bit of a joke. I thought it was just a drinking man's club and all the rest of it. But mm-hmm. it was starting to change. Um, they were taking younger people in. Well, you couldn't join until you were 17 and a half, and I was coming up to 17 and a half. So I went home and I said to my mom and dad, look, I'm not going to go to the army and join up. I'm going to go to the TA and see what I like. And they thought, that's a good idea. At least you've got a feel for it. Mm-hmm. So I went off to a few selection weekends for different different regiments and different units. I was telling my dad, I went to the Royal Engineers weekend, got through that, they would have taken me. Went to the Paras and got through their fitness. But they would take me to then go through their fitness again and go away and do your P company and all of that. So that, again, that was it was like the infantry, except you jumped out a plane. Mm-hmm. And I was going to land anyway, so I don't know why you would want to jump out in the first place. <laughs> Chances are I was going to land, so I thought, nah, maybe that's not for me. So I went to another one and I came back and I said to my dad, I says, I'm going along this week eh, to do my, my oath of allegiance, you know, get sworn in and all the rest of it. He was all excited. He thought I was going to Royal Engineers and he says, so who's it you've joined? Who's it, where are you going? I says, I've actually joined the military police. Because he never spoke to me for three months after that. Because <laughs> So, so I, I did it for 13 years. I came out and I, the only reason I came out was because... Um, you know, my boys were younger at the time with started the family and between working and dad thought early on I'd volunteered for a lot of courses because when I was working with a life assurance company, they were actually encouraging people to be in the TA or mm-hmm. the reserves that are now known. And one of the things they were saying was that if you went away on courses, they would give you the leave, it didn't affect your annual leave. Mm-hmm. And you would go away and do your two or three weeks in Germany once a year as well, because at that time we were all training up uh, for Germany. Mm-hmm. So any course that came along, I always volunteered for it. They always tell you in the army, never volunteer for anything, but it was an opportunity for me. I got used to the discipline. It probably put me down the right road, mm-hmm. if I'm honest. You know, I was a young 17 and a half when I first joined. Certainly within two years, I, I was more a man than what I was when I first joined. You get a wee bit self-discipline out of this. Mm-hmm. So I did that, as I say, I did it for 13 years. 
Um, and then I, I, I finished up, and then I got put on the reserve list, as they do. And then you think, well, you're on the reserve list. I think it was three years. And then they extended it, so, you know, you're still young enough, and they kept extending it up until I was about 45, and eventually I never got another letter, which was brilliant. So, <laughs> um, so I'm free now. I'm free now. You might but, get a knock at the door one day. No, no. <laughs> certainly too old for it now. I couldn't even get a uniform with women now, I don't think. Wound the midriff, but... No, it's um, yeah. So that 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 was my early my early life. Mm-hmm. Excellent, thanks, Ken. So if we start to move into your career in health and safety, then what was your first health and safety job? Where was the bridge from the facilities management and fire safety moving into a more focused health and safety role? How did that come about? I got um, got the opportunity when I was working within the facilities department. They were looking for a health and safety advisor. I'm sorry, an assistant health and safety advisor. Um, in, in the days, for some reason, health and safety always was reported in through the HR department. Mm-hmm. And I, I, the job came up internally, and I actually knew the health and safety manager that was there. So I went along and spoke to him and says, look, health and safety is always a road I've wanted to go down since my accident. And, you know, I took this job after and wanted to progress, I went into fire safety, which was not a bad thing to do before you went into health and safety anyway, because it gave you a good ground and a good knowledge for that. Um, so when I spoke to him and he said, well, your application, and so I did, and I, and I got it. And as soon as I went in, started there, uh, I've got to say pretty low risk environment, because you're talking predominantly, although there was a facilities department, you're predominantly talking about office staff. Uh, so I moved over, and right away they sent my way on my Nibosh certificate. Mm-hmm. Um, and about a year, I think it was a year later, 18 months later, I went away and done the diploma as well. Um, mm-hmm. So I got through all of that. And then there was a job came up with another life assurance company in Edinburgh, which don't come up very often, but it was more to do with looking at the safety on the, the construction of the new head office. Mm-hmm. And although I was a principal contractor appointed, they wanted somebody internal just to liaise with the contractor and, and, and what have you. There was a full-time safety guy and all the rest of it. So, so that was fine. So I moved over to them mm-hmm. and I was there for three years until the new head office opened. And then I got the opportunity from there to go and work at university in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. It was a three-year fixed-term contract. If I'm honest, Blair, I lasted 18 months. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I can deal with guys on building sites all day long and you know what, what they throw at me, I can deal with that, I can manage it and we can get through it. Dealing with students was a different kettle of fish. Yeah. You 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 did not know what a student was going to do next. Yeah. At least within the building environment, the construction environment, you can sometimes gauge what somebody's got to do before they actually do it. Yeah. Students, students, I just couldn't gauge them at all. You know, they were alone to themselves. And I, I, I just thought this, this <laughs> working with students, you know, given my uh, phobia for being academic anyway, anyway, working in a university wasn't it for me. So, um, so I was there for 18 months and there was an opportunity came up with a contracting company and I, I went for that and I got that and went, went into mean sort of contracting medical centres, schools, mm-hmm. housing, things like that. So I was there 
the, for the four years again, I think, three and a half, four years. And then I got a phone call uh, to see if I would be interested in going to consultancy. We're a national consultancy company. Mm-hmm. And every time, every time I've moved, I've always looked to move to better myself. Yeah. You know, I, I, it's no cliche, but I've actually never moved for money. Mm-hmm. You know, in the early part of my career, I've always looked, I want to better myself and learn something new. And consultancy, it was consultancy, but with house builders. Mm-hmm. So it was an opportunity to, to focus on that. Um, it was an opportunity to have a different outlook, um, dealing with different clients. So a number of the sort of major house builders were clients that I was dealing with uh, within Scotland and northeast and northwest of England as well. I went down as far as Kendall. So yeah. dealing with some house builders down there. And you, you were giving your own clients, um, which was good. So you, you got to know the local management teams and local boards and, yeah. and working with these guys and attending their management meetings as a consultant and all the rest of it. So I did that for a couple of years, but lo and behold, my boss at the time that took me on, he had been pulled into a project to look about about taking out a certain layer of management within the organisation. Mm-hmm. And foolishly for him, the layer they were taking out was his and he was part of the project team. <laughs> so he got me redundant. Um, but he landed on his feet, he went set up, a, it was an architect and engineering practice in London, we're looking to a safety management company in place mm-hmm. so he went into london and got that established down there looking after london and home counties and, and what have you and it was at the time planning supervisors yeah so on the back of the architects and engineers work they were getting a lot of planning supervision work mm-hmm. so they had an office in edinburgh and they had an office in dublin so out of the blue he phoned me up and said look we want to expand the safety management part of the business into Edinburgh and Dublin. Mm-hmm. Would you be interested in coming along and overseeing it and getting it implemented and introduced and what have you? So I said, yeah. So I joined them. And part of my role, as well as obviously providing health and safety management services to clients, we had a number of national clients, which were pretty good. Part of my role was to try and generate new business as well. And mm-hmm. because it was Edinburgh and Dublin, I had to go out into the marketplace and tout for business and sellers and things like that. And I was fortunate enough to land a national house builder that was based in Edinburgh mm-hmm. um, as my first my first contract, if you like. And it was a substantial contract providing health and safety services um, across, the, across the UK for them. Mm-hmm. That included carrying out site inspections, uh, providing planning supervision as it was at that time, uh, training. So it meant that I was the one guy that was covering Edinburgh and Dublin. I had to expand the team pretty quickly. So I managed to recruit a couple of guys Mm -hmm. up in Edinburgh. um, And then we had to place people down in England as well to cover the work down there. So on the back of that work, I think we generated five jobs on the back of that work, which which was a positive. Mm -hmm. Um, So that had been running for a couple of years and they they were very pleased with us. I used to go along bi-monthly and sit down with the group MD and just run through the performance and he would tell me things that he thought that we should focus on and get the business to look at and all the rest of it. And I had a health and safety manager in the business, a group, and I had a couple of regional health and safety managers in Scotland. 
Mm-hmm. And at that time, the lady that was a health and safety manager group had decided she was going to resign. Right. So I got a phone call from the group MD to see if I would be interested in going for the job mm-hmm. as group health and safety manager. Um, so I went along and chatted to him and, and what have you. And technically, it wasn't right because there was a clause in the contract that he couldn't put any of our staff. Mm-hmm. But it was me that wrote the contract and it was me he was wanting, so it was overlooked. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I went, I went along and, and plus consultancy, you probably appreciate it as well when, you, when you've got a family and the mortgage and all the rest of it. Consultancy could be up and down. Mm-hmm. You know, you can you can win work very early on. I also experienced as losing work, mm-hmm. and in some areas that they started to struggle a bit because yeah. we had full time people there and they were losing contracts and all the rest of it. So, in terms of security, I thought this is an opportunity. It's a good company. I'll move over. So I moved over. Um, I think within eighteen months, they made me the group health and safety director mm-hmm. in the business and. and like a lot of these businesses had a five-year plan where they wanted to be in five years. I, and I had to build the team around where they were going to be in five years to support the business. Yeah. So it expanded, expanded the team nationally. Mm-hmm. Put guys or, and girls in, in down south. Um, and we just built it up and built it up from there. So I ended up, I was there 11 years. Mm-hmm. And I actually thought I would never, ever leave that business. Um, yeah. With a change at the top, and we did a an acquisition down south, which I was involved in the, the due diligence team for that. And then we set up an integration team when the new business came over to us that to integrate, they had lost their identity, so they were going to be us going forward. So that meant that to integrate into our health and safety management systems, environmental management systems, all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. So I was part of that team as well. And then again, out of the blue, I got a phone call uh, to see if I would be interested in, in going along and speaking to the, the chief operating officer at the time, he eventually became the chief exec. Um, for you and I first met at Robertson's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I went along there, and Derek, who's since retired, was very, very clear. There was a five-year plan there, mm-hmm. and he wanted the business was going to grow. Yeah. You know, and, and certainly, the time that I was there in five years, it was. When I joined, there was 1,200 staff. When I left, there was 3,500 staff. Yeah. So in that five-year period, it was massive. Yeah. It was a period of exponential growth. There was loads of new businesses starting up within the group and really starting to develop through. Yeah. No, it is. I mean, when I first joined, I think there was 17 individual businesses. And when I left, there was 23. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and it was... You know, that, that, that has its own, its own challenges, certainly from, from the job that we do. Mm-hmm. You know, because you know we're growing parts of that business. When I started, I had three staff, and when I left, I had 120 staff. Mm-hmm. And it's all very well throwing people at building a business, but what you end up doing is throwing 120 people that have come from different cultures. You know, perception is totally different. It's trying to bring them into the way that we were working at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it had its challenges as well. So. I accepted the, the job anyway, um, because it, it, again, it was another step to, it was going to better me, if that makes sense, but it was also going to allow me to impart information to other people that I'd learned over mm-hmm. the previous years, um, certainly 11 years that I'd been health and safety director elsewhere. 
and I was getting to that stage that I, you know, but let's be honest, health and safety practitioners in the main tend to be guys about my age, the older generation. Mm-hmm. And now we're starting to see younger people like yourself who are coming through. And it's, it's up to us now. I, I think we, we have a duty now to pass that information and those learnings on, you know, because we've been through a lot, we've seen a lot, we've had to deal with a lot, um, sometimes not the good stuff. Yeah. It's to impart that information onto the younger generation coming through now. Mm-hmm. And it, it's all about life experiences, you know, that, 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 that's what it's about. Um, so I, I went there with the intentions of, well, one of the key objectives I was given was to, to establish uh, at that time, it was Sheck at quality as well, a Sheck team that would support the business in five years. Mm-hmm. And we would be at a certain level, which they achieved. Um, they achieved that in year four, actually, but we had achieved it because I tended to work in advance of it in, in terms of the business plans. We had the team in place to support it in year four anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and it worked, you know, we, we demonstrated it worked. We had a good team there. There was, there was a few, you know, I've learned on building teams in the past as well that sometimes you get it wrong. Mm-hmm. You just need to admit you've got it wrong. Um, and if you've recruited the wrong people, then you need to change it. And that sounds harsh, but that's the reality of the world. Of course. Um, and I've learned from that. I have put people into positions that perhaps weren't in the right positions. So over a period of time, I made a few tweaks. You would have seen some of the tweaks that I'd, I'd put in place, but I always put in place for a reason. Yep. Um, knowing what the end game is going to be. And I, I believed as well that there's a lot of information that you need to share with the team. That's, mm-hmm. that's a big, to me, that's a big part of leadership. Yeah. You know, there's, there's no point in me keeping it all to myself. You know, I, I was there. Just... Oh, sorry, Ken. That was one of the things that I enjoyed about working with you. You would come into the office and you had a wee office separated off from everybody next to the kind of bank of desks that we worked in, but the door was never closed. Yeah. You know, it was oh, an open, come in and have a chat with me. If you've got an issue, come and speak to me. Come in, I'll try and help you figure it out and we'll work through it together. And that was a great approach, especially for a young person coming into a business to try and develop as a health and safety professional, getting that support and that mentoring and that coaching with all of the life experience that goes behind it, really set me up in my career. And I want to thank you for that because it's really stood me in good stead. People will laugh when they see this podcast because they'll say, he talks about five-year plans all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's it's interesting because some businesses work on three-year plans Mm -hmm. and uh, that's fine. you know, look at three years, but I always have two years at the end of it. I still work to five-year plans. That's still my... Now, as you know, these plans are updated yearly. You know, so it's always a rolling five-year or a rolling three-year plan, you know, and certainly the role that we do, it's, it's all about supporting the business and providing that support and guidance and coaching. Yeah. Um, communication, I mean, that's, that's, that's key to everything that we do and engagement, you know, so... The, 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 one, the one part I miss a lot is probably over the past six, seven years is I've not been as, as operationally focused. I've not been out mm-hmm. with boots on the ground, if you like. Yeah. I, I miss that part, but again, if you take a step back from that, if you have the right team round about you, 
you've got confidence in them and you know they're going to be doing the job anyway. Yeah. There may be issues that have to be escalated. That's fine. We can escalate them. Mm -hmm. We can deal with them. Um, so that that's one of the parts that I do miss is the sort of operational side. The hardest part I found when I sort of started moving away from the front end was actually dealing or getting used to working at board level mm -hmm. and dealing with boards and what have you. Now, I've now been through that two previous companies and I'm now a, with a third company at that level. And what I would say is every board operates differently. Yeah. And it's, it's, again, it's down to communication that the end game is always the same. It's how they get there might be slightly different. Mm -hmm. But our job doesn't change. Yeah. You know, our our part is probably the most consistent part of all of this. You know, mm -hmm. and uh, what, we're, what we're going through the now in terms of pandemic, I, when I first got involved in health and safety, was that, I need to think what age my oldest son is. And that's how I remember when I first got involved in health and safety full time. That was, so it'd be 28 years ago. I know you're going to say I look too young to have a son at 28, so that's, that's fine, boy. Um, I never ever thought that I would have to work through and manage and deal with a global pandemic. Never ever thought about it. No, I've, I've been through the swine flu. Yeah. I went through, um, when I was working in consultancy, I went through the, the BSE crisis that we had. Mm -hmm. I, I remember in that particular one covering sites in the northeast of England, and I was doing site audits. Uh, we were doing in-depth in audits that the client asked for rather than just site inspections. Mm -hmm. And I remember traveling around the northeast of England, and there was this constant, pungent, burning smell. And it was from the burning of the carcasses in the fields. Yeah. There was a haze and getting stopped every few few miles with DEFRA and getting the wheels of my cars disinfected and having to get out of the car and stand and disinfect it and get back in my car before I could go through to the next village or, or you know. I thought that was the worst I would ever see. And then the swine flu and what have you as well. And then obviously coronavirus and COVID-19 came along this year. And I think it's taken a lot of people by surprise, you know, and, and going forward. Certainly, health and safety practitioners' role, I think, may be slightly different. Yeah. Because I think the health and safety has come to the forefront of this pandemic. Mm -hmm. And it's not just a, it's, it's something that we need to have within our business. It's something, it's something that needs to be there, you know, to help the businesses through it. So, and to us, it's just, it's a risk. But we're well versed in managing risk, you know, and my concern at the moment. The message I've been banging on about is we're very, very focused at the moment on the controls we've put in place for COVID-19. We mm -hmm. cannot take our eye off the ball on what our day-to-day -day risks are. We still have people working at height. We still have people going to confined spaces. We still have people digging in the ground and hitting underground services. Mm -hmm. We can't take our eye off the ball. And COVID-19 needs to become another risk that we add to our risk register. Yep. And we just yep. need to make sure we manage it. You know, I saw an interesting stat the other day on LinkedIn that there's been more service strikes, an increase in service strikes yeah. during the pandemic. And one of the things that I thought about right away when I saw that statistic was, is that people going out there with a the mindset that their heads elsewhere and they're going out and starting working, they're maybe practicing their controls, but their head's not fully in the game. It's wondering whether I'm going to get paid off, whether I'm going to yeah. maybe not have a job at the end of the week or... Um, am I going to get sick working on this site? Am I going to carry it home to my family? So it's those distractions building into that because it's such an unprecedented time just now, I think, 
And I think that's something that we're going to need to look to manage going forward. Well, without a doubt, Blair, I am um, in the main, I've, I've managed to get out and about around some of the sites and to a man, I've not met anybody yet that doesn't want to work within the, the controls that we have in place. Mm-hmm. And when you speak to them, they're actually very conscious and it's not so much about their own health, although that is that is a factor. A lot of people out there are more concerned about picking something up and taking it back to their families. Yeah. And certainly some of the people I've spoken to is they may have elderly parents mm-hmm. and taking something back to them and you know they may be vulnerable and all the rest of it. So the message is certainly out there and, and, and people do want to work within the guidelines. Again, it's down to communication. Yeah. You know, and it, it's, it's down to engagement. You know, engagement's huge in this and, and speaking to people, you know, mm. and it's not about sending a set of rules out and saying that's how you're going to work going forward. It's, it's taking the time to explain it to these people why we're doing these things, you know. Yeah. Um, as I say, engagement to me is something, it's always been there, but over the years, it's probably not been done as well as it should have. Mm-hmm. Certainly over the past few years, it's something I've been pushing. Because, you know, we're health and safety practitioners. They're not, we're not policemen. We're not there to hit them with a big stick all the time. If it's wrong, it's wrong. We need to fix it. Mm-hmm. We, you've heard me saying this before, Blair, nine times out of ten, if it's wrong, we've probably come across it before and we know what the solution is. Yeah. So it's sharing that solution. It's engaging with the people. You know, let's get away from this... Uh, the guys not working safely, they get the red card out and get them off the park. Mm-hmm. That doesn't help anybody. We yeah. need to understand why he chose to not work safely. That's that's a big thing for me. You know, I've got a good analogy for that one. Your Friday site problem is someone else's Monday morning headache. Exactly. You card someone off site, you might get rid of them off the park, but you're bringing somebody else on as well on Monday, and they might be 10 times worse than the person you get rid of. Yeah, yeah. That's certainly... One of the things I've been pushing in terms of if we do have an accident, an accident investigation and we speak to the injured party and, and what have you, and the witnesses, is trying to understand if they were doing something unsafely, get an understanding of why they chose to do it that way. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's that's a big thing for me because that's as part of the investigations and the lessons learned and, and what have you, that, that is massive. If, if we can get an understanding of that, then we can try and counteract it later on because if they're thinking that other people will think these things as well. You know, so it's just, it's trying to get the understanding of why people are choosing to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a great believer in somebody has an accident, that's it, you never work on our site again. Let's mm-hmm. understand these things. So, yeah, yeah, it's, um, but we're getting there slowly. Yeah. yeah. Break down the barriers. That's so it. if we move forward a little bit, Ken. If we talk about what's been your biggest challenge across your long career, working in all the different roles, progressing on into the, the directorship role at a national house builder, what's been the what's been the biggest challenge you've had? I think the biggest challenge I've had today is probably people. Mm-hmm. If I'm honest, and it's um, getting people to to understand why we have to do things a certain way. You know, mm-hmm. unfortunately, if you look at if you look at the history of legislation, a lot of legislation only gets introduced or changes when something serious has happened. Mm-hmm. You know, and I would I would love to be in a position that I could actually say this is what's going to happen tomorrow because people are going to think this way. Now, 
and you, you do get a feel when you're out and you're speaking to people and you're standing observing people you can actually now start to say wait a minute he's got to do x y and z and you can intervene and that's purely through experience because you've seen people doing it before and you've had to stop them but you can start to see you can actually see people's body language and the way they're thinking mm -hmm. well i'm going to you know the classic one with the chop saws with the guards on it you know and they're just about to switch it on and you just stop them before they push that button and get them to think about it but yeah i mean people probably try to change people's perception of the risk but everybody's perception of risk is different anyway you know yeah. your perception may be totally different to my perception mm -hmm. you know there may be things that i would think is a risk but it's controlled and i would be quite happy to do and it may be something you look at and say why would they be doing that and vice versa you know mm -hmm. there, there's certain things um so people's probably the biggest challenge and i also include in that um the first i get involved with the board level with directors and mm -hmm. um, you can get some challenges there as well uh, i'm not slate any profession in, in particular but a lot of them has got to do with the money side of things yeah um, and once you explain to them look this is the reason we need to do these things and there's a cost to it but this is likely the cost it's got to save you if it does go wrong yeah and you start to explain that that, that side of it you soon get it so because the other, the other biggest challenge I've had is actually COVID-19. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I never thought I would ever see this, but hey, it's, it's here. We need to manage it and we need to deal with it. We need to rely on, I tend to rely on the scientists more than the politicians. That's that's my view. So I'll read what scientists say before the politician says. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. So if we move forward a little bit more, Ken, what's next in the career journey? Where do you see yourself going next? Uh, retirement? No, I'm only joking. <laughs> um, I'd, I'd, I'm, I'm, I probably, in terms of health and safety, I've probably gone as far as I can go. Mm -hmm. Where I see myself in the future is continue to do the role, mm -hmm. but also trying to coach and mentor young people into health and safety. Yeah, said earlier, we're now starting to see a lot of younger people um, coming into it. You know, I just job I just left. Um, just started putting one of the, one of the younger members of the team uh, through their qualifications and all the rest of it. And was my plan to do a bit of coaching and mentoring, but that's um, since moved on. But I, I see a, a big part of my role is trying to bring the younger people through, and I've got that where I am now. I've got a couple of young people in the team just now. And I need to look at the succession. You know, I've always, particularly when I built a team, I always looked at succession planning as well. Yeah. So they always have somebody there that can start to slot in. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that that's and I'm perhaps more involved in the business side of things, mm -hmm. you know, and getting a better understanding for some aspects of the business part. I've got a good grounding on the business part of it, but there's certain aspects that I want to get a wee bit more understanding of so i've always i've always taken the view we're having a team again you've probably heard me saying this that is there can be a lot of politics involved mm -hmm. senior level and i've said to everybody that look i'll take the politics that's what i'm paid for i'll take that and shield the team from the politics to allow them to go do their job you yeah. know and i'll i'll filter the politics and deal with them um, 
So it's things like that and just getting more involved in the business side, uh, which I am at the moment, which is good. There's a couple of areas I just want to get a wee bit better on. So if you're a young person starting out in health and safety today and you see an opportunity to go and work for Ken, grab it with both hands because you'll learn a huge amount and get a vast amount of knowledge and maybe buy him a new joke book for Christmas as well because you'll get fed up in them pretty quickly. <laughs> I was going to say it would enhance their joke book. <laughs> Brilliant. So what advice would you give to someone starting out now in health and safety? Because a lot of people are selecting it as a first career now. It used yeah. to be that people picked it up as a kind of second career and went to it a little bit later in life, but we're now seeing a lot of graduates coming through, maybe going to university, studying health and safety as their qualification and then coming out into the workplace. What advice would you give there? I would I would certainly say they need to be they need to be passionate. They need to believe in what they're trying to achieve as well. Um, there's one one bit of advice and a lot of people won't agree with me with this on this, but I'm still going to say it anyway. There's one bit of advice I could do, and I did this, um, my oldest son, he went to university and did construction project management, and he's now working with a site manager in my previous company in construction. But during his university days, he actually worked as well, because you know what students are like nowadays, it's not five days a week, was it two days a week or something? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So he, he, he worked with another company, and he actually, I'd, I'd said to him at the time, I says, look, if you're going to go into construction, Project, uh, project management or what have you. You need to have an understanding of what the guys on the ground are actually doing, the ones you're going to be telling them who are going to do it. Mm -hmm. So fair play to him. He got a job when he was at university and he laboured on site. He worked as a labourer while he was mm -hmm. doing his degree to get an understanding of what a labourer is up against. Mm -hmm. He then the same company then started doing the receipting on site to get an understanding of the material coming in, the material going out, and receipting the material so the invoices could be paid. So you got an understanding of that side of things as well. Yeah. It tends to be jobs that are passed on to other people to do, and site managers and project managers tend never to get involved in it. Mm -hmm. But at least now he has an understanding of what these people are going to do. So the, the one bit of advice I would say to anybody that works in health and safety is if you get the opportunity, depending on what industry you go in, bearing in mind that there'll be a lot of people watching this and not just construction or house building and what have yep. is to get some sort of feeling for what the role is that you may be monitoring or auditing or inspecting. Mm -hmm. Now, the way I've done that within construction and house building and with, with newer uh, safety advisors coming through is I've got them booked into... Sorry, I missed that. Sorry, Could you say it again? Siri's just went off. <laughs> is um, got them working on site for three, four months with a site manager to understand that the pressure that some of these people are under. You know, they've got health and safety to manage, that's a given. They've got environment to manage, it's a given. They've got quality to manage. They've got clients to manage. They've got subcontractors to manage. They've got inductions to carry out. So it's getting a full understanding of what these people are actually got on the plate on a daily basis. Because it, like it or not, when health and safety turn up, they're probably the last person they want to see anyway. You know, it's changing. It's, it's changed over the years. We're now starting to see health and safety professionals getting taken in as part of the team and they're recognised as part of the team. We're not the policemen. 
you know, that has changed. That's a positive swing that I've seen over the years. There is still some of the old school dinosaurs out there that still view it that health and safety is a health and safety manager's job. You know, that that's in the main that's disappearing. And there's a bit of ownership now. So so yeah, I would I would say to them they need to be passionate, passionate about their role. We need to believe in what they're doing. And if they get the opportunity to get experience of working at the ground level, doing the job itself, then take that opportunity. That's, yeah. you know, it's, um, you know, the, if people are in full, there's ways to do it now. If people are on a degree, you can actually take them on and employ them mm-hmm. and then let them finish their degree. It might take them 12, 14 months longer to finish their degree, but at least they're employed and they're learning the coalface as well as doing the last part of the degree or the yeah. last two years of the degree or what have you. So it's and taking that opportunity. Position for a business is they're able to mold them into what they want them to be and they've not been elsewhere to get other ideas and other methodologies are working. Yeah. They're coming in and learning how the business operates and developing through in that business, getting that ethos right from the start of their career. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. So it's there's it's, it's, it's life experiences as well, you know. It's, it's it's getting that experience, and because you will get people when you're talking to them, they'll say, "Well, what do you know? You're just coming out of university. How can you tell me how to do this?" And, that? and yeah, we can tell them how to do it because there is normally a legal reason why they need to do it. But it's getting that life experience and getting an understanding and getting a bit of rapport with them, and that's where the engagement comes in, mm. the communication part. Yeah. Definitely. Thanks a lot, Ken. On behalf of the viewers, I say for your average, thank you very much for coming on the show. And I just want to say a personal thank you for all of the development, support, help, guidance you've given me over the years. It's really helped me to grow my career and develop to the position that I'm in just now. And I really appreciate it. No, you're welcome, Blair. Including your jokes. Hope your jokes are better. <laughs> oh, they're much better now. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> So thanks very much, Ken. Thank you. Thanks. This podcast is sponsored by Inside Out Group, the specialists in high-risk and challenging filming and time-lapse, covering health and safety videos for rail, construction, and infrastructure projects nationwide.